David Harry. Probably. Well, we're having fun. Rasp- yeah, but think about your instrument. What a job to do here. I'm going to do the job. It's going to sound fine. Don't you worry about that. All right. So, the point is, because you're going to Cornwall... Oh, yeah. I stayed up late last night, got up early this morning, and I wrote you a story, oh, especially awful, isn't it? about a Cornish person. Have you, have you read it since you wrote it? No, it's it's a lovely story about a Cornish person, okay? So that you can... Is it about John Cornwall? <laughs> you're going to learn. Okay. You're going to find out, okay? Origin of the uh, Cornish pasty? No. Okay. Um... How old? Are we going to get into it? We, well, it's the story, yeah. Are we still point... doing three words? <clears throat> I've not even said this story begins yet. Okay. Stop hitting the table. <laughs> Can you... Stop... I'm going to get you a lozenge. Cause this is... <laughs> you need to... Are you going to be coughing all the way through this one? I am. I always cough all the way through them. But I can edit. No, but the the, the, the uh, Lewis one, you were just coughing the whole time. Yes. You can't cough out when you're... All right, give me a sec. It's not that, it's phlegm. It's not a throat lot, it's the phlegm. Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote and this is Consistently Eccentric, a podcast where I will attempt to teach a friend of mine a lesson from British history, focusing specifically on the lesser known and less believable people and events that the history books tend to leave out. So let's get started with... And... History. Cool. This story starts in the Victorian era. And your three words, iron, yep. hospital, yep. rope. Okay. Um, is there a hanging? Ooh. Ooh, there is. Mm, maybe. Witches? No. Okay. You went too far. Um, heathens. It's Victorian. All oh, right. There's no witches in the Victorian times. Actually, to be fair, the last... Ooh, a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> Not a ghost, then. In 1877, in Cornwall, Mr. and Mrs. Williams had a baby boy. Now, either due to a distinct lack of imagination, or because they found it funny, they named their son William. William Williams. I've known a few people like that. Really? Yeah. And did did their parents seem like cruel cruel people? Yeah. Yeah. His school friends teased him mercilessly, calling him at first Willy Willy, and eventually just double dick. (laughs) (laughs) that isn't actually true although it's likely that he did receive some form of education because by the time he was born in cornwall the methodists had become a big thing and they provided a lot of the kids with a free education so you know at least he had school friends to mock him because he was at school but you just made the double dick up that's what i would have done all right I was just thinking, you you're don't a, you're you don't get called William Williams and not have someone comment at it. But double D's, double D. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's all right. Like you, you sort of, you know, you try to start your own nickname. Yeah. People calling you Double Dick, and you just be like, yeah, they call me Double D. Yeah, yeah, just try and twist it just enough. Yeah, yeah. Hope they don't sort of delve further into that. I was Mister Cool for a, and it stuck. You were Mister Cool for year seven. Nice. I had a fucking. Do you remember you cut your hair to look like the prodigy? Uh, prodigy. Like Keith Flint. Yeah. Yes. Um, so you cut your hair. It was like you, you, you cut all your hair and you just had a fringe, if you imagine that. Mm. But you, you, you had it, so you don't have to imagine. Um, and then you you sort of shaved the middle bit and then made two like wings on the front of your head. Yes. And I was like, well, I can't do that. But what I can do is 
the bit he shaved off, I'll just keep that on. Mm. So I just had a dick on my head for the whole time. <laughs> I remember. Yeah. But you know what? You you styled it out, so... I was com- I was a confident year seven. Yeah. Um, all, the, all the anxieties came in about year nine. Yeah. <laughs> they got beaten out of you over the next couple of years, all of that confidence. So, the late 1800s, it was a mixed time to be the son of a miner in Cornwall. The great boom of copper and lead mining that had started in the 1840s was coming to an end by the 1870s due to competition from but foreign mines. Tin. Well, it had always been tin. Oh, right. They'd had a nice little tin industry, but then they got into copper and lead and it had led to a massive influx of workers because you were opening all these new mines. But by the time the 1870s rolled around, <clears throat> there were foreign competitive mines who could, you know, undercut because the other thing about the Cornish miners were they were very unionised and they, they fought for things like reasonable wages and workers' rights. Right. So you could either buy Cornish copper and Cornish lead. But it's a, an where expense. People, yeah, people were paid a living wage. Or you could buy it from countries where they weren't paying a living wage. Sort of still do that now. Mm, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, during those 30 boom years, though, the population of Cornwall had nearly doubled from five to ten. <laughs> uh, but as the work was drying up, um, people were starting to leave in droves. Yeah, and it was weird that there weren't enough jobs to go around because legislation had been passed in 1842 that forbade women or children working in the mines. So you'd think they'd need to, you know, a lot more of the manpower would have been protected in terms of their jobs because you just, at a stroke, taken away half of the workers right. in this legislation. Now, the original definition of child in the Act was 10 or below. Right. As soon as you were 10, according to this Act of Parliament, you were a man and you could do man's work. But the House of Lords got involved and went, no, 10's too low. You're yeah, not a man at 10. But I don't feel like they're going to put it up to 18. At 13. Oh, right. That's, it's better than 10. Well, it's hit and miss, isn't it? Mm. You've got some kids that have got a moustache at 13. That's true. And then you've, you've... You're on the cusp of having some of those manly yeah, attributes yeah. at 13. Um, worryingly though even though they now had to be 13 one of the most common jobs for children because you think child labour in the mines they weren't on the you know the face of the mine sort of no they'd be useless at that yeah they've not got the strength for that yet but one of the things they could do is mind the doors mind them mind them and this isn't like a bouncer thing like you're not getting in without ID basically in order to make sure that there was oxygen flowing around Mm -hmm. they had a series of vents or doors and they had to be opened and closed at various times to get the 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 airflow going around which is exactly the kind of thing you want to entrust to a 13 year old thinking yeah (laughs) oh my god so the the lives of all these miners are based on a a couple of early teens yeah a couple of tweens just oh my god remembering to do it i mean before then to be fair they're living in a different... They're not They're not playing Fortnite and mm. well, smoking weed. Before yeah. this 1842 Act, when kids could just labour, a child's working day would normally start at 2am and end at 8pm. And if they were still doing this job, do you want to trust someone... 2am to 8pm? Yeah. Do you want to trust... And then they go to sleep. Do you I'd want hope. To, yeah, trust someone who has been up that length of time. You know, you're going down and you've started your shift, you're on the night shift and you've started at 6pm and you're walking past these kids who are basically just clinging onto a door with one eye open and you're thinking, you're going to keep me alive. It's a pretty cushy job though. Well, just opening and closing the door. Monotonous though and boring. 
That's true, but you you can just look out to the. Um... No, you you're still underground. What? A lot of these. Oh, it's I, about moving. I imagine the... there's just doors on the. So there'll be one lad who's got on... the cushy job on on one of the vents at the. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Just breathing that sea air. Yeah, enjoying it, looking out, yeah. imagining becoming a pirate, all that kind of stuff. And most of them are just in pitch black next to a big wooden door, having to remember to open and close it. Yeah, not a great time. Oh, William. Double days. Yeah, he, he did, at the age of 13, try to follow his dad into the mining business. So he was going to be a Cornish miner. But with worsening conditions and pay, because they had to start competing with those foreigners... Which meant they had to start, you know, yeah. cutting wages and basically worsening conditions. He made the decision in his early 20s to try his luck somewhere else. And he emigrated to America, the land of opportunity. Oh, so it's not really a Cornish story at all. It's... I said it was a story about a Cornish person. All right, okay. A person of Cornwall. <laughs> uh, I didn't say I didn't say it all took place in Cornwall. <laughs> now, he ended up in, go on, guess a state. Well, I guess a state. That, he he went to the United States. So, which state do you think he ended up in? New I realised saying guess a state was very. Um, He's got to be in aggressive. New York, hasn't he? Where he ended up, not not where not he where arrived. Arrived, yeah. Um, a miner. Is it a place where you'd have mines? Oh yes. Uh, oh, San Francisco is he in California. No. Arizona. No. Right, I'm going to go for more Montana. No. Delaware. No. South Dakota? No. North Dakota? No. Uh, um, where else were you? Illinois? No. Texas? No. New Mexico? No. Fuck's sake. Um, Vermont? No. Maine? No. Um, oh, Utah? No. Um, fuck off. Um, oh, uh, Montana. I've said that one. Yeah, you have said that one. And I Alaska. said no. No. Oh, fuck. I thought I had that one. Um, New, uh, Louisiana? Nope. Is there any left? Yep. Because <laughs> there's one you haven't said, definitely. How is that possible? Right, we can call this out, but I'm going to get the... Um, I'm, just, I'm just imagining around. I've said New Mexico. Nevada? Nope. Um, right, we're coming across the top. Are we north or south? We're north. Okay. Um, so you got Illinois. If it helps, think of NFL teams. Oh, no. Um Go and tell me. Minnesota. Fuck off. He ended up in Minnesota, where discoveries of iron ore in the mountains of the Vermilion, Masabi, and Kuana ranges had led to a boom in mining. Minnesota. Yeah. It's just been Bob Dylan's birthday. I should have known that. Mm. Gone. Uh, also, of course, home of Prince. Is that where he's from? He's from Minnesota, yeah. He was. <laughs> he's dead now. Um, well, he still is, technically. Yeah, I suppose so. I suppose that's true. He's dead and still from there. And he's buried there, to be fair. So and he's still there. He is still there. Yeah. Sorry, Prince. Um, so that's good. There's there's loads of new mines opening there all the time. It's iron ore that he's going to be mining, but a mine's a mine. He knows what he's doing. We're talking fresh seams. We are talking very fresh seams. I mean, mm. most of these, in the 50 years preceding him arriving in America, they were open, these mines. So they're all, relatively speaking, brand spanking new mines. Uh, but on the negative side... Bears. Probably, yeah. Uh, these some... are mountains in North America. There's got to be something oh, like yeah. wildcats, and... wildcats and wolves, and yeah. yeah. But no, for Moose. me, <laughs> the, the the negative side I found with all of those cold. 
Yes, because he'd moved from the hottest part of mainland Britain to the fourth coldest state in the USA, which averages 15 below zero in the winter. That's the average temperature during the winter months. God. So you move from Cornwall, which on good days is kind of subtropical. I mean, what's the coldest it gets in winter? Minus five? For like one day. Yeah. Whereas the average here is minus 15. So it's like minus 30 some days. Yeah, it's, it's not good. So your eyelashes stick together. <laughs> yeah, you can't. You literally can't open your eyes. Just wander around blind and cold. In a mine. Daddy. <laughs> I made a mistake. Can I come home, Daddy? And all the toilets are outside. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, you have to get it all out of your body before it freezes up. Oh. Oh. <laughs> it's a race. Yeah. Um, so William had been working for about five years in the cold, harsh conditions when he developed diphtheria developed he developed diphtheria uh, which is a respiratory tract infection that is most common amongst those living in poverty and alcoholics hmm. suggesting william wasn't doing too well at the time could you get it from mining though well it was from cold cr- it was from cramped conditions with other people who had it it's so all humid and horrible yeah so it's well, not because he's alcoholic or no, but it, they said it. Oh, poverty! Yeah. Poverty and alcoholism is it, it. It was something that was um, seen a lot more amongst people who were. But I guess most of the miners there were poor and drunks and drunks. So, I, yeah, probably. Yeah. So anyway, it it didn't speak to him having captured the American dream at this point, and he ended up in hospital in St Paul in 1904, when at the age of 27 he experienced a revelation. Ooh. While lying in his hospital bed, is it mine related or is it completely different? It's it, it, it's beyond the realm of work. Yeah. Okay, so spiritual. He's if, having a spiritual awakening. If only he met a boy called John Keller, who oh. was also recovering from diphtheria. And when I say boy, um, he was only fourteen at the time, John Keller. But William didn't let that dissuade him from asking if John wanted to move in with him instead of returning to his parents' house after he got better. What are we doing now? Well... What's this story? William has... You don't have to read every story Yeah, William. On the podcast. <laughs> William has uh, met a 14-year-old boy and has asked the 14-year-old boy to move in with him yeah. in his apartment in St. Paul in Minnesota. Okay. And John has said yes. Is it like a split-the-rent kind of deal? Ooh. Please. No. No. Is it like a mentor-mentee sort of relationship? In a way... Why are we doing this? Because this is part of the story. So, uh, John agreed, uh, and the two lived together for over a year. Presumably... Right, in my head, I'm just going to imagine John is six foot eight. He was... And has arms like tree trunks. He was quite a big guy, yeah. Yeah. I don't know why I'm trying to make this like... It's, no. it's making me uncomfortable no, no, no. we're going to some paedophile story. John, John, John was a child... And um, William, William wasn't was double not, D. Double D was not a child. Oh Christ! And they lived together for a year. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know if it was a sexual relationship, but they did go on two romantic trips to Winnipeg in Canada, to a rather remote area. Why romantic? Because they went to a, a, a nice remote cabin in the woods just to s- spend time together. No, they were fishing. They, yeah, that's what they were fishing. Yeah. They were. Either side of an ice hole. (laughs) Well, at some point during this year, John's parents remembered they left their son in the hospital. 
you know, yeah. a while back at some point, uh, and they went to check on him, only to be informed that he had left months ago with a large gentleman with a strange accent. Yeah. Uh, John's father tracked him down to William's apartment and, showing quite a bit of restraint, uh, considering the abduction and grooming of his son, said he was not approving of their friendship. He was very clear to call it a friendship. Was this... It, it, is that Victorian sensibility that was in England? Is it, Was there an aspect of that? In... Well, we're in, we're in Edwardian times now. We've, we've turned the page on... Queen Victoria's been dead a few years now. Yeah, but it's... Rather keep it quiet that his son was... Yeah, yeah I think yeah. it was... Look, you know, we don't want the scandal, but this stops now. Right. And you're going to come home and you're going to forget about the, the year that you had experiencing whatever it was you were experiencing with this older gentleman. Just fishing and... Yeah, and you're yeah. you're now going to find... You know, you're 15 now, you're going to find a wife mm-hmm. and, and settle down to, to a proper life. You're going to settle down and, and fly on with it. Um, no, he's not going to... He loves him. No, John, John returned home. Um, oh, thanks. To, yeah, it's been awful. Yeah, and that, that should have been an end to it. But William couldn't accept the loss of his young lover. And he began writing letters to him. And I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, why are you suddenly using the term lover? When before that I was saying, we don't really know what was going on. Because the letters. Yeah. You have the letters. Well, the letters started out quite creepy. Can we just do the next three hours? Are you just reading the back and forth correspondence? Well, no. Is it just one way? It was one way. <laughs> so they started out quite creepy. And I'll just give you a, a flavour. I want you to believe that I love you now as much as I ever did. It won't be long before we will be together. Could I read that in just a normal way? No. Um, Because you'll be able to read on. I know your tricks. I I don't... But they quickly, these letters, became super duper sinister. Can you just do it in like a low? Yeah, I was going to change it. All right, sorry. Keep your promise to me this time, old boy, as it is your last chance. You understand what I mean and should have enough sense to keep your promise. Mm. That... mm, John, however, never saw these letters. As they Did you were do being... it in the Cornish accent? <laughs> I wish I could. Oh, no. uh, John never saw the letters because they were being screened by his parents, who understandably... Were shaking in a corner yeah. reading them. Well, they were concerned that their son shouldn't be having more contact with someone who was clearly unhinged. And they felt that if they just kept ignoring it, eventually it would go away. Because it wasn't like he'd come to the house or anything. Mm. Yeah. Do they know where... It... Oh, he knows where they live. He's sending letters. As the weeks dragged on, though, and with no word from his lover, William began drinking more and more. And and then a little less. And (laughs) then more. Yeah. And then a lot more. And because this was America, after all. And then a Baraka. (laughs) And a sleep. And then more. And then more drink. But because it's America, at some point during this month-long binge, he was able to purchase a gun and some ammo. Yeah. Yay. And in April 1905, after three days of no sleep and heavy drinking, William made a decision that he was going to take John back by force, and he went to the Keller home with his gun. Old shiny. The persuader. Yeah, he's been... Did he call it the persuader? No. <laughs> That's great. He, he didn't have much of an imagination either. He called it gun. He called it gunny, and he put two little googly eyes on the side. Yeah, well, to We're be honest... we go get him back, aren't we, gunny? He's going to try and speak to a child, so he doesn't want him to be terrified. Yeah. Uh, he broke in during the night and made his way to John's room. He found him sleeping face down in his bed. And possibly... <laughs> I just had a vision of him, like, 
complete pencil face in pillow. <laughs> You're just like, <laughs> You're going to regret laughing. Uh, possibly it was seeing how relaxed John was compared to William's oh. own anguish that convinced him to change his plan at the last moment. But whatever the reason was, William chose not to wake John and take him back with him to his apartment and instead shot him point blank in the back of the head, killing him instantly. Woken by the gunshot, John's mother rushed out of her own room. I, I, I like to think that he got the... And in the in the six months, he'd grown quite a bit. And he was like, actually, I can't physically pick him up anymore. He's too big. Uh, uh, yeah, he's, he's grown. <laughs> it's like, I've, only sm- I've only brought a small cart. I'll wheel his body away. <laughs> oh, well. Yep. <laughs> On to plan B. Yeah. Well, um... Woken by the gunshot wound, uh, by the gunshot wound, <laughs> woken by the gunshot. <laughs> My head's disappeared. <laughs> John's mother rushed out of her own room, but unfortunately this placed her between William and the exit. And Gunny. And Gunny. William shot John's mother once before leaving the house. She died from the resulting wound a week later. John's father, however, was out at the time and survived. By the time he How? returned, there were police all over the place. This was because William had gone straight from the Keller house to the local police station. What do you mean all over the place? Uh, all over the house. Just one sat in the bath. <laughs> <laughs> few in the garden. Imagine, because they didn't have police one tape. sprawled out in front they of the fireplace. They would already have roped off the a, area. On a rug. And there would be a lot of police stood on the front lawn chatting. Yeah. You know, sort of laughing and joking, and then they'd see the dad walking over and they'd suddenly go quiet. Rumpf, rumpf, rumpf. So, Crime rumpf. But the police had managed to get there before the dad because William had gone straight from the Keller house to the local police station to tell them he'd just shot someone. Right. So he didn't didn't go on the lam. He didn't try and run away from it. Despite the confession, though, and the incriminating letters with the thinly veiled threats, William pled not guilty. Yeah, it was Gunny's fault because he separated himself. Oh, well. It's Gunny. Gunny with his eyes. He didn't go for the traditional insanity plea. No, he went for emotional insanity, blaming his mental state, lack of sleep and heavy drinking and claiming that he had no idea why he had shot John. So he went for the, rather like a crime of passion. Right. Um, Mixed in with being delirious for yeah. the drink. And weirdly, um, before they could bring him to trial, this went to um, the Supreme Court of the state and one of the judges dissented to the opinion that was he wasn't insane and basically said, I, I do believe this was a crime of passion. Um, because it, it's been a, a long-standing defence for lovers, that if you kill your lover in a fit of passion, it, it doesn't... Um, Negate the fact. The yeah, you're still going to go down for a murder, but it kind of, it goes from premeditated murder to second-degree murder. Right. Um, the defence uh, was, anyway, it wasn't about trying to get off, it was about... Uh, I'm trying to figure out where this story's going. Well, the defence was about trying to avoid the death penalty. Mm -hmm. Um, Because although it was rarely used in Minnesota, with only 26 people being executed in the previous 50 years, Williams' lawyers were concerned the suspicion of homosexuality around the case would lead to the harshest sentence possible. Mm. And it was a valid concern, because once the insanity plea had been rejected, William was duly convicted of the crime and sentenced to a death by hanging. Oh, there's the rope. There's the rope. We've got... What was the other one? Iron. Yeah. Oh, God. Hospital. Hospital. He hasn't been to the hospital yet. That's where he met his paramour, John. Oh, oh, yeah. Now, 
There had been a push a few years earlier for Minnesota to adopt the electric chair, as other states had. Uh, And in 1888, while trying to convince the state legislature of the humane nature of electricity as a form of execution, a doctor set up a demonstration involving a dog. So he was going to painlessly kill a dog via electricity. Mm -hmm. And I realise I'm talking to a dog owner here, so... I apologise in advance. My dog's sick at the moment. Well, unfortunately for both the doctor and the dog... Yeah, he's got bronchitis. He does have bronchitis. The first shock that was administered that should have killed the dog uh, only served to make the dog howl in pain. The doctor panicked and hurriedly messed about with the equipment Mm -hmm. um, and tried a second shock, which only made the dog howl more. The doctor then frantically asked his assistants to start shaving the dog because he believed that the the fur was creating some kind of insulating barrier. Uh, But the politicians by this point had seen enough and dismissed them before they had to witness even more unnecessary animal cruelty. Did they kill the dog? Did it survive? Well, it's unknown what happened to the dog. So let's say he was adopted by one of the assistants, Mm. renamed Sparky, and he lived out a long and happy life in the countryside. No, part of his brain had gone... And he just... Surely they'd just kill him. I don't know what happened to the dog, I'm afraid. I, I thought you'd you'd jump on the happy story. No, it's not It's not real, though, is it? He's going to be in so much pain. Mm. But it turns out that when you're trying to prove that electricity is a good way of killing someone and all you do is maim a dog in front of, essentially, the state parliament, they're not going to go for it. All uh, this is wanting me to do is to check on my dog. You can do that soon. Can I do it now? No. I'm just going to go and do it. Is he okay? He was asleep. Fantastic. So, without the electric chair in Minnesota, William would be hung. And this would take place before daylight on February the 13th, 1906, within the walls of Ramsey County Jail, and with a minimal amount of people in attendance, including absolutely no press. How old is he now? Uh... 29, I think. Oh, shit. Yeah, but no press are allowed in. This was due to the awesomely named Midnight Assassination Law, which was in force in Minnesota at the time. Right. Uh, it was a law that purported to protect the dignity of the condemned, but really it was an attempt to deflect the growing cause for the death penalty to be abolished. So the law basically said that people who were being executed, it would be done in the, in the sort of early hours before it became light to try and dissuade people from coming. And even if you come, they would only allow, I think it was three people that the prisoner said they wanted there. So it's just keeping it as hidden as possible. Yeah, and six members of the public could come in, but absolutely no press, so you couldn't get the story out. And this new law may have in part been due to a history of botched executions in the state. One example being the hanging of William Rose on October the 16th, 1891. Now, Rose had murdered his neighbour, after he'd objected to Rose's advances towards his daughter. Uh, In order to stop people from looking, rather than do it within the walls of the prison, they built a ramshackle box around the gallows. So they basically put up fencing um, around the gallows, and a massive crowd gathered around this box, because they'd all come to see a public hanging, and then suddenly someone had put up this fence. Um, But as the... Could you hear a hanging... Well, you'd hear the dunk, yeah. Would you hear a crack? If if they'd done it properly, you might. But so just all these people really quietly 
No, they were they were all stood their there. Ears next to a fence. And there were guards trying to keep them back. But as the time drew near, the guards couldn't resist a lucky loo themselves. So they abandoned their posts to go and have a look. And all of the crowd just pressed in and started looking through the holes in the poorly constructed fence. Oh right. So it was it was a much more creepy way. So it, the person, you know, William Rose looking out could just see loads oh. of little holes with eyeballs oh my God. all around him. Bloodthirsty eyeballs. Yeah. Bloodthirsty eyeballs. That's a good description. (laughs) Um, It was a good thing, though, that there were people watching, uh, because when they dropped the trapdoor at 4.56am, the weight of Rose's body caused the rope to snap and he fell to the floor, being knocked unconscious in the process, because, of course, his his arms are pinioned, so he can't stop himself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, falls like a tree. And now the sheriff presiding over the execution, Sheriff Mead, he was a bit embarrassed so he hissed at his deputies to carry the unconscious rose back up to the top of the scaffold while he quickly tied another noose then he slipped it around the unconscious rose's neck and heaved him through the trapdoor a second time now he thought he got away with it but some of the people looking through the cracks in the uh, fence had been members of the press uh, and the reports quickly circulated of the botched execution which was damaging because most of the politicians had taken a kind of pro-capital punishment stance. Right. And this this was making them look bad. So in the, they need it to be as clean as possible. Yeah. And they know that they've been having troubles with it. So in lieu of making it clean, just make sure no one's talking about it. Mm. You know, just brush it under the rug. So part of this was you, the press weren't allowed there and they weren't allowed to report anything other than the fact that the person had been executed. Do they do electric chairs anymore? Well, uh, how do how do because they still have capital punishment mm. in some states, don't they? They do, yes. But is that like lethal injection now? Or well, there's they, been a lot of trouble with lethal no injections anymore. because they can't get hold of the drugs. Um, <clears throat> is it? It's Arizona. The um, the currently in the process of revamping their gas chamber, and they're going to be using Zyklon B, which you'll remember is what the Nazis used to to gas Jewish people, uh, and that's that's honest to goodness truth that they're, they're going to start using that again. Well, it's tried and tested, isn't it? Well, the thing is... If you're going to kill someone... The the argument like, well, against... How did they kill all these people? But the argument against the lethal injection was that it went wrong. Of all the forms of um, execution, it was the one most likely statistically to go wrong. So Arizona have gone, right, we're going to go back oh, to... Oh, because it's such a balance. Yeah. Arizona have gone, we're going to go back to the gas chamber, which was the second most prone to going wrong. What would be the easiest... You know them cat, the way they kill cattle? A bolt gun. Yeah. Wouldn't that just be the easiest way? And you could ask them. The easiest way would be just not to kill people. Oh, I completely agree. But I'm just trying to think what's the... They're trying to have the cleanest way. Mm. If you just sort of got the person to go in and they just lean against the bolt gun well, thing. The original the, the original idea... And then press the button. <laughs> ...for the gas chambers was that a person on death row would be put into a special cell that um, was airtight and that at some point during that week one of the nights the governor would of the prison would elect as the execution night the prisoner wouldn't be told and while they were asleep they'd fill the chamber you know the, the cell with gas so it would be very humane that was the original plan for the gas chamber right um, but that just never happened because they wanted to go through all the theatre of have you got any last words we want witnesses there to, to, to watch you die kind mm. of thing that they've got going on so the the next best thing that you know that the people of Minnesota, the politicians of Minnesota, were well, if we just make sure that no one reports on it, 
we can just say this person was executed in accordance with the law and it'll stop all of those anti-capital um, punishment people from having something to, to grab onto. Yeah. But unfortunately for them, a reporter called Joseph Hennessy was able to get to view the execution of William Williams via the masterstroke of answering no when asked if he worked for the press. Oh, cool. So they, they, they allowed six Smart. other witnesses and he managed to get to the front of the queue. And he went, now, you've got to tell us, do you work for a newspaper? And he went, no. And they went, okay, that's good enough for us. In you come, sir. It was a lot simpler about them. Oh, it? it was. This means that we know exactly what William's last words were as he stood upon the gallows. Gentlemen, you are witnessing an illegal hanging. I'm accused of killing Johnny Keller. He was the best friend I ever had, and I hope to meet him in the other world. I never had improper relations with him. I am resigned to my fate. Goodbye. He finished his statement less than two and a half minutes after leaving the condemned cell, and the trap door was released. Unfortunately, as we've said, executions were rare in Minnesota, and this was the first time that Sheriff Mason had needed to set up a noose. So they just got to build a whole rig every time. They had the rig, but he had to, you know, fashion the noose because you're supposed to measure the rope based on the weight of the person. Right. So Sheriff Mason, he made a couple of rookie mistakes. He's popping the head off, isn't he? Well, firstly, yeah, he had taken William's weight when he'd first entered prison, but William was now significantly heavier due to stodgy prison food that he'd been eating for months whilst awaiting the outcome of his appeals. So he'd been in prison for a little while while he tried every avenue open to him, like most people on death row do. Uh, this led to the rope being considerably longer than it should have been. Sheriff Mason had also, for reasons best known to himself, used a rope that was quite stretchy. And indeed, a reporter... <gasps> uh, rip- this is the invention of the bungee. <laughs> is this how it started? Uh, is this oh, where we're going? You'll see. Well, Unlikely collaboration between it. What, a, a death, death row, row inmate. inmate and the warden of the prison. Well, the reporter, jo- looks Joseph Hennessy, uh, he wrote that it stretched a good eight inches when it was forced to take the weight of Williams. This, combined with Williams' neck stretching reported four and a half inches oh without quite breaking, meant that Williams ended up standing on the floor on his tiptoes, struggling to breathe. Mm. Four inches stretching your neck? Yeah. So he was Is that he, even possible without dying. Just about. Oh my god! It was like this was the worst it could have been. If it had been any longer, he would have just ended up sort of stood on the floor, going, "All right." If it was any shorter, it would have worked. But they, Sheriff Mason, had accidentally managed to oh find that god. sweet spot to hold him between living and dying. It's like that, you know. You ever watched? Is it Ten Years a Slave? You ever watched that? No. There's a scene in that where he's like strung up like that, mm. when he's he, he's just got enough room to like, on his tiptoes, mm. keep himself alive. Yeah, I'm well, this, this was this, yeah. yeah. Now, in times of crisis, some people step up to the plate and take an authoritative charge of the situation. Sheriff Myson was not one of these people. He panicked, and he ordered three deputies up onto the scaffold to grab the rope and pull Williams bodily up off the floor. This led to Williams being slowly strangled to death over the course of 14 minutes. A death made considerably longer by the fact that the deputies 
quickly became fatigued and kept allowing William's feet to touch the floor. Oh my God. Because holding, so you know, torturing yeah, holding 13 stone of someone, you know, dead weight mm. on the end of a rope, it's, it, it's going to tie you out after you've been doing it for 10 minutes. William's attorney, oh, he did eventually die, I should point out. This Of, of what? <laughs> Gunny. <laughs> yeah. Eventually he got bored of it, pulled Gunny out of his, <laughs> out of his trousers and shot himself yeah. rather than go through this anymore. No, he, he died of strangulation. William's attorney, James Cormican, described the execution as a disgrace to civilization, And presumably, Sheriff Myson described it as a very bad way to start the day. Fucking hell. His personal work day. Yeah. It's going to take him to lunch to shake that off. But, you know, at least they can keep it quiet. You know, there's there's no, no way this is going to get out. But then... Well... The day got significant. Well, considering you know about it, Joe, yeah. I feel like it's going to get out. Yeah. Well, our friend, member of the press, Joseph Hennessy, he thought that this was news that was worthy of um, taking a risk and breaking the midnight assassination law to publish. And at 5pm in the late edition of the St. Paul Daily News, it was the main story. Joseph Hennessy didn't pull any punches, gave a very, very detailed description of this horrifically botched execution. And although Joseph and his newspaper were prosecuted for reporting the truth, the story turned public opinion in Minnesota firmly against the death penalty. Good. And no more executions were carried out in the state until the death penalty itself was formally abolished five years later in 1911. Just in that state? Yeah, just in that state, because it's a state-by-state issue. But the the death of a Cornish miner had been so horrific that it... I mean, there was a growing kind of anti-capital punishment um, movement in Minnesota, but this was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back that everyone well, this is the to. This is the... He didn't wet the sponge. Yeah, moment. Of, of green Mile, isn't it? Mm. Oh, well, God. Everyone is forced to just see how horrific it is. Yeah. You can dress it up in whatever you want, but this is... This is the reality of it. Um, Although, because this is America, there have since been 23 separate attempts to reinstitute the death penalty in Minnesota, with the last one, to this point, being defeated as recently as 2005. Although William Williams um, inadvertently contributed to the abolition of the death penalty in Minnesota, his abandoning of the Cornish mining industry didn't stop the industrious Cornish people continuing to mine tin until 1998, when the last working tin mine in Europe, South Crofty, near Camborne, was finally closed. Mm. This marked the end of an industry that had been a staple of the Cornish identity since tin had first been mined in the county in approximately 2150 BCE, meaning that the Cornish were tin miners for a period of just over 4,000 years. And then they, and then they ran out in... Well, it just wasn't profitable. It wasn't profitable anymore. Right. They couldn't compete. Compete. Iron ore mines in Minnesota, however, are still going strong, with seven open pit mines providing Thank more God. iron ore than any other U.S. state. That's a relief. Good for the Minnesotans. Yeah. Uh, and since Minnesota became the third U.S. state to abolish the death penalty, another twenty states have followed suit. The most recent of which being Virginia in 2021. As long as the state governor, Ralph Northam, signs the repeal bill into law. 
This will make it the first state of the Confederacy to do so. Right. Which is quite a big landmark moment if it happens. Although, again, the the state legislature have voted. They represent the people. They voted for this, you know, thing to happen. Yet still, it relies on a piece of paper sat on a bloke's desk. And if he decides, not not even to say he's not going to sign it, but to just ignore it, you know, technically the death penalty is still on the table. It's an amazing... I don't understand how the law works over there and how, you know, government works over there that you can you can do all the things you're meant to and then just if one person... Is this the Ask Ange segment? Well, I, I might need to ask Ange, but I guess this is one of the few ways in which our queen is really useful in that, you know, she's the person who it falls on her desk, but she has to sign things. Yeah. So things get royal assent as a matter of course in our country. Whereas in America, you know... You see this all the time, governors and governors and all the different heads of the various places that they've got over there. They can just go, oh, no, mm, I don't want to. <laughs> and they don't even need to do that. They can go, oh, yeah, I'll get around to it. And then just ignore it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just leave it in the dusty corner of the room where all the other things that they don't really want to deal with sit. It's like, oh, that's, mm, that's going to hurt my re-election. I'm going to just uh, leave it to the next guy. Well, I just feel like it's like, well, how much are you going to give me to to sign this? <clears throat> Bribe. Yeah. Mm. So that is your story of a Cornish man who, in a roundabout way, helped to end <laughs> the death penalty in Minnesota. Who had sex with a child and died. Thanks for that, Joe. <laughs> Enjoy your holiday. <laughs> Bye. Bye.